A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. After the 2008 financial crash, 1.3 million Brits were made redundant and 40,000 lost their homes. In the UK, only five bankers were jailed for their role in the crisis. The rest walked away with their share of over £13 billion in bonuses. Since then, city bonuses have increased by 101%, while the average worker has experienced a fall in real wages. Gary Stevenson, who was one Citibank's most profitable banker, says the British economy is fuelled by, and is being destroyed by, this inequality. Using his insider knowledge, Gary sat down with Ollie to discuss how this all works and what's at stake. Because, in his words, if we don't fix inequality, our fucking kids' lives will be shit. Enjoy. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one! It's the Politics Show cast. Gary Stevenson, founder of prestigious YouTube channel Gary's Economics. Uh, Inequality economist. Formerly best trader in the world, whichever one you want. <laughs> well, um, we'll get into the, the subject matter of the book and go through it sort of piece by piece. But I thought as a sort of opener, I'd just sort of like to invite your thoughts on the economy in 2024 and what you sort of think the driving forces in it are going to be. I mean, you don't need me to tell you that it's bad. I don't think any of your viewers will need me to say that. Um, in the last three or four years, we've seen the biggest, fastest ever increase in inequality in the history of this country. That's led to a situation where I think, realistically now, you're talking of about, I think about half the families in this country struggle to simultaneously put the heating on and feed their kids in the winter. I, think, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Uh, that's new, you know. When I was a kid, there's always been poverty in this country, but I don't think it's ever been, well, you know, not since before the wars. I don't think it's been the scale it is now. Um, so, you know, you, you know, and some of the people who watch will know the work that I've been doing. So I started my YouTube channel at the beginning of COVID. Um, June 2020 is when I put it out. My history is I'm an inequality economist. Um, I made a lot of money after the 2008 crisis because I thought because inequality was growing, we would have a very weak recovery. At the very beginning of COVID, it was very clear to me, I don't think it was clear enough to enough people, inequality was going to increase massively. So the way I see it is, in the last four years, especially during COVID, we paused the economy 
massively increased inequality, unpaused the economy, and then were surprised when living standards fell. I think for me, that's the big unspoken issue. And, you know, I think until we start speaking about it, then we're not going to address it. Until we start addressing it, we're not going to fix it. Mm. And things will get worse. So the book is almost a biography, right? Chronicling your journey. You mentioned in the intro there, um, best trader in the world. Run us through that journey. How did you come to be working at Citibank? All right, so I grew up in Ilford, which is in East London. Um, quite poor background, but I was always very good at maths. Um, you know, East London, you can see like the skyscrapers in the background, you know what I mean? And I think you grew up good at maths. People just assume, you know, and I assume you, you'll be a banker. Yeah, don't, don't know what a banker is, but you'll be one. Um, and uh, I managed to get to LSE, the prestigious London School of Economics, which is a big sort of finance boot camp nowadays. Um, and I figured that I'd just do really well there and, and get a job. Um, turns out it's a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> um, you know, nowadays, or at least when I was, it was in sort of 2006, 2007, I was a student. You basically need to send your like a CV to like 50 banks, and you know. But you're, you're 19 years old, so what's on your CV? You know, so my CV had, you know, this guy's fluff pillows at DFS on the weekends, and you know, tried to be a grime rapper, which is that's what I was doing when I was a kid. But have everyone, still, have you still got the video of that? Of me being a grime rapper, yeah. that's been, everything's been destroyed. <laughs> um, Burn all records, yeah. yeah. Um, everyone else had all these amazing stuff, like, you know, like Trek the Sahara Desert for some charity, you know, president of the Junior United Nations. And I was like, how am I ever going to get a job? Right? It's quite depressing because you think, you know, work hard, study hard. I was, you know, I was a good student, I had good grades and that. But then you find that actually, you know, if you've never played the fucking oboe at the Royal Albert Hall, you're fucked, basically. Um, but luckily, one guy, a friend of mine, well, he's a friend of mine now, at the time I had no idea who he was, kid from Grimsby, just walked up to me in the library and he was like, do you know, he said, you Gary Stevenson? I was like, yeah. You know Citibank High 1 trade with you through a card game? Um, I was like, no. He's like, yeah, it's, it's basically a maths game. You're good at maths, right? I was like, yeah. All right, into this game. And uh, he explained the rules of the game to me. This is the, sort of the opening of the book. It's why we've got trading game cards. Here. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I ended this competition, you know, first round LSE, I won. Basically because I knew the rules. No one else knew the rules. Um, <laughs> final at LSE, that's quite a dramatic story. It's explained in the book. But um, Sorry, the final at Citibank Tower in Canary Wharf. I won that and I, I ended up being a trader at Citibank. And um, yeah, that's how we started. So you ended up on sort of one of the most profitable desks right there. Yeah, it's a funny one because it was a super unfashionable desk pre-2008 crisis mm. um, with a bunch of kind of like old men, basically, because that nobody had wanted to go into that area of banking for like 20 years. So there's a lot of guys in their sort of 40s um, sort of stuck in the corner. Suddenly became super profitable in 2008. I started as a trader in June 2008. So tell us a bit more about that desk and how it sort of shaped your initial impressions then of the world of finance. So, so, so the, we, what we traded, we traded foreign exchange basically. And um, because the euro got created just before then, like a ton of foreign exchange traders lost their job, right? Because if you're the Italian lira trader or like, you know, Greek drachma trader, mm. you know, now we only have one euro trader, right? So it meant that that area didn't hire nobody for ages. So it was a bunch of these older guys kind of, and... The city has changed a lot in the last like 30, 40 years. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, it was kind of a bunch of like, I worked with a guy who used to play rugby for, I can't say, in the book is London Irish, I can't say he really used to play for, you know, and he got a job because he was a rugby player, you know, and um, 
you know, there was another guy who never went to university, worked his way up. So I was, and there's some, some crazy guys as well. Basically, the, the people who no other, no other desk wanted ended up. So it's a, it's a bunch of nutcases. If you read the book, you'll see. I, some, I love these guys and I'm still in touch with a lot of them, you know. But um, they were crazy guys. Um, and that nowadays, it's very much these London School of Economics type professional, you know. You know, their dad is in the part of the Chinese government or, you know what I mean, they've been very well raised. But yeah, I worked with these crazy guys and um, it was, you know, you walk in and you saw, there was a guy when I was an intern, asked me to paint his flat. He had a flat in Clapham and he didn't have no doors. He had only rotating walls. And the guy was like, like three through that whole cinema room. And I was like kid from Ilford. And this guy was obviously a psychopath. And it was like, fucking hell, if this guy has made enough money, I, I need to be in here basically. So kind of, I think it revealed to me that you don't necessarily need to be a genius to make a million quid in finance. <laughs> I think that's probably the first thing that I realised. How did you see yourself, you know, saying that all of those guys who are on FX were nutcases? Yeah. Do you, do you view yourself as a nutcase or do you think of yourself at the time as fitting into that, that group? <laughs> yeah, I, re- I wrote this book, right? I tried to be as honest as I can. And in a way, you write a book, it's kind of like, you know, I was never like a diary keeper. You go back and you revisit the time. I was a crazy kid. You read this book. I was a crazy kid, you know, like I was so competitive. I was that kind of kid. Like if you give me a game, you give me, I'm winning, I'm winning. Like the internship, there were three training competitions. I won all of them. There was a public speaking competition. I won, I've never done public speaking in my life. I I was that kind of kid. And it's, I think I describe it in the book. Like there's one scene in the book where like a guy wrote me like an email and he says, don't rush onto the training floor, you know? Take your time, enjoy your youth. Once you get in, you'll never get out. And I was like, fuck that. I started working three days after my last exam, right? But, you know, when I was a kid, I was fucking poor, mate. Fucking poor. Like, I was like, you know, you can't go on the school trip. So I remember when I was a kid, uh, we went on a school trip to the beach and I lost my plimsolls. And that was it. I didn't, that was it. School shoes, only shoes I had. I had to play football in school shoes. You know what I mean? Mm. You know, I, I slept on a broken mattress my whole fucking childhood. I didn't even fucking know. I just thought that's what fucking mattresses were like. You know what I mean? That makes you fucking hungry. Yeah, so, you know, I was a crazy kid, but poverty would do that to you. And there'll be people watching that will understand that. And it must be then really intense to go from that to going to Matey Boy's flat in Clapham with only revolving doors and like a cinema room and these being the sort of the people that you're hanging around with all the time. Was there like a... I don't know, maybe culture shock's the wrong word, but what was it like sort of mixing and rubbing shoulders with people like that every day? You know what, there's, so there's one character in the book called Snoopy, he was like the junior on the desk, really nice guy. And um, he also didn't come from like a finance background. And I talk about, early on we have this conversation where I'm like, you know what, like, these guys on this desk, like, they're all fucking mental, aren't they? And he's like, yeah, but they're making fucking tons of money, mate, so don't fucking tell them, you know? <laughs> and it's, um. You know, this guy with the rotating walls is a Rupert character, right? Like, you know, proper public school. I describe him in the book as, what do I say? He looks like he got dropped off unexpectedly at boarding school at six years old and his parents didn't come back till he was 21. And he's like this kind of guy. Like, I, I, I'm weirdly quite fond of him, but he's crazy, you know? And you come in, you see the amount of money and you... Look, I, I knew these guys were mad, but it's what you're going to do, right? This is your fucking ticket, yeah. you know? So like, you, you, you be the Gary they need you to be. And I was going out with this guy partying and clapping with his, with his fancy boys wearing my fucking, you know, 20 quid waistcoat from Top Man. Mm. You know, I did what I had to do. <laughs> One of the um, recurring themes is, in the book is kind of 
that no one knows anything. And that extends to, you know, senior figures on the trading floor and all sorts. And then, you know, we get to the financial crash. Do you think that that, that attitude you describe or that ignorance that you describe yeah. is still as pervasive now? Do you think things have sort of changed post-crash? What's, what's your analysis of that? So I left trading in 2014. I went back to, to, to university. I did a master's at Oxford, 2017 to 2019, right? Oxford University, best university in the world. Those guys do not have a fucking Scooby deal what's going on. Like, they're like, you burn that place down, you make the world a better place. I'm telling you, that economics department is an absolute waste of space. Um, but of course, like, the trading floor is not, the econ- is not economics. I think what is interesting, I think, for people to, to understand, and I talk about this a bit, is like, there's kind of two worlds of economics, right? There's the world you see, right? You turn on the news, you read the newspaper, you buy the Financial Times, you buy The Economist. You know, you watch, see Rishi Sunak talking on TV about the economy. The best paid 10,000 economists in the world are all traders. And you will never fucking hear a word. If, when I'm, I'm at Citibank, best trader at Citibank. If the BBC calls up Citibank, what do you think about interest rates, European interest rates, which is what I traded? Do you think they put him on the phone to me? Of course they fucking don't. They put him on the trade to somebody who gets paid 5% of what I get paid, who, has no, who never even met me in their life. You know, there's a, there's a separation. It's, if you're getting your economic analysis for free on the TV, right, and I'm getting paid £2 million a year in a skyscraper somewhere. Mm. Do you think you're getting good fucking analysis? So I think that the world of public economics, you know, the last three or four years has really exposed it. An, it's worse than a farce. It's a, it's a comedy. Like, we, UK government has given out, total UK government deficits since the beginning of COVID, £800 billion. That's enough to give every adult in the country £16,000 each, right? Mm. You give out that amount of money, Somebody's going to end up with it. You're going to massively change the wealth distribution of the country. You have to ask who's going to end up with this money. Who did the analysis? Did the Labour Party do it? No. Did the Financial Times do it? No. You know, did you Oxford University do it? It's not even that the analysis was wrong. They didn't even do the analysis. I honestly think like the state we've, the state we've come to with regards to public economic analysis is such a farce. But as soon as you understand that all the best economists I paid £2 million a year to shut the fuck up and bet on it. What do you think is going to happen to the economy? Mm. Can you tell me then about those bets, those trades you made post-2008 that led to you becoming the, the best trader then at Citibank? Yeah, so it was 2011 when I was Citibank's top trader. Um, and so basically, I started working in 2008, right? Just before the crisis. Crisis happens. Everyone's like, oh, that was a surprise, right? But I think a lot has been spoken about the crisis itself. For me personally, I think what is interesting is what happened after the crisis, which is during the crisis, because central banks like the Bank of England cut interest rates so much, massively, all the economists, we, we are taught to believe, you know, massive interest rate cuts cause massive economic stimulus. So we were like, okay, 2009, massive recovery, you know. This, I think, should remind you of the way people spoke about what's going to happen after COVID, by the way. The, do you remember the roaring 20s? Yeah, you know? I do. <laughs> um, pent up demand. Um, so 2008, everyone's like, 2009, massive recovery, didn't happen. Okay. 2009, everyone's like, 2010, massive recovery, didn't happen. You know, 2010, everyone's like, 2011, massive recovery. And, it, you know, it's, that's when I start to get suspicious, basically. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I, I've seen these guys, you know. I worked with some really smart people. Most of them were not really smart, right? So you see these guys around and you're like, well, they're wrong all the time. They don't seem to me like geniuses. Um, and I just had fucking pound signs in my eyes. You know, like, you're there with guys getting paid a million pound a year to bet on the economy. 
they're wrong all the time. A lot of them seem kind of like insane idiots. That's fucking money. You know what I mean? Mm. Like if you're watching the Premier League and you know you're better than all these fucking guys and you know they get paid 200 grand a week, you're getting on the fucking pitch, right? So for me, I was like, well, I can fucking do this. Right? I, need to, I, wanna, I wanna understand what was happening. You know, the story is explained in the book, but I basically had this genius idea of if you wanna understand what's happening with the economy, you know, there's this character Billy in the book who sort of got me onto this idea. Why don't you just fucking ask people? Why don't you just go and fucking ask people, you know? <laughs> Why are you guys not spending more money? This is the big shock. Nobody understood why people weren't spending more money. None of these millionaires in skyscrapers understood. You go and ask people why they don't spend money. They'll fucking tell you because mm. they got no fucking money. You know, and I started asking my mates, right? And they're like, well, you know, you know, my mum had to sell her house because, you know, she couldn't, you know, pay the mortgage. So now, you know, or, or you know, my mum lost a job and now I'm paying the mortgage and the interest rate's sky high. I looked, all my mates losing their fucking houses. You know what I mean? And, um, that was beginning of 2011, which was European sovereign debt crisis, right? So that's when Spain, Greece, Italy, Portugal all go bankrupt, basically. Um, and when that happened, or just before that happened, when I saw it was going to happen, I couldn't help but notice this similarity, right? My friends losing their houses, going into debt. Every major government, Western government in the world losing its assets, going into debt. And what struck me was, like, it's impossible, actually. You know, we can't all go into debt. Somebody has to be on the other side of that debt. We can't all lose our houses. Somebody has to own the fucking houses, right? Mm. So, and you know, I didn't have to look far to see, you know, you're surrounded by these sort of posh idiot millionaires, right? And you're like, fucking hell, this is it. Like, this is it. Like, this is what it is. Like, the middle class is being destroyed. Governments are being destroyed. It's all going to the rich. They're going to use that money to buy the rest of the fucking assets. This is going to go to fucking hell in a handbasket pretty fucking quickly. There's going to be no recovery. So I just started betting massively, like interest rates never come back up. And by the end of the year, I was top trader in the world. And then everybody was like, here you go. Have a million quid, well fucking done, do it again. Mm. Which is a, you know, it's a story in itself, I think. Tell me more about this idea uh, of the rich sort of squeezing, sucking the life out of the middle class. This, this sort of redistribution of, well, assets, I guess, from, yeah. from the, the shrinking middle upwards. First thing, we probably have to discuss a little bit who the rich are, right? Because, you know, when I was a kid, I come from, like, very modest background. And when I was a kid, I thought rich was, like, anyone earning 60 grand a year. That's what I thought, you know. Mm. I don't know like, what your childhood was like, but that's what I thought, right? 60 no, grand right. a year to me was, like, pff, loads of money. Um, that's not the rich. That is not the rich. Um, you know, there are families out there that have net wealth of, like, 100 million quid. They run in family offices. And I think it's worth understanding, right? Imagine you... Right, so... Richard Sunak, according to the Times Rich List, is worth 700 million quid, right? He'll make 5% a year on that, you know? Let's be conservative, say he makes 3% a year. That means he's making 21 million pound a year, passive income, mm. passive income. What would you do if you made, had 21 million pound a year passive income? Quit my job. Yeah. How much money would you spend every year? I don't think I'd spend all of it, right? I think I would, I'd just, I'd take whatever an index fund delivered off it and that'd be me. Exactly, right? I mean, if you spend a million pound a year living, I couldn't spend a fucking, I don't know how, even know how you would do it, right? No. So you're Richard Turnout, you spend a million pound a year, and that 20 million pound, you use that to buy assets, right? Yeah. And, you know, if it's a growing, if you're in a rapidly growing economy, they can use that to build new assets, but we are not in a rapidly growing economy. So what happens if your economy is not growing, and this guy is getting 20 million pounds in assets every year? Well, it has to fucking come from somewhere. Mm. You know, so 
if, you know, I always think people need to like, look at their family, you know, and like, what percentage of your home did your dad uh, own when he was your age? It's going down, right? Mm. It's going down. If you look at like the percent, youth home ownership is collapsing, right? Those houses are not fucking disappearing. Look at government debt, it's going through the roof. Look at mortgage debt, it's going through the roof. Someone is on the other side of that debt. You know, I think we, you know, Tony Blair famously said, you know, I don't mind if the rich get rich, right? If the rich, wealth of the rich is exploding at the same time that wealth of the middle class is collapsing and wealth of governments is collapsing, do you not think these two things are fucking connected? You know, it's, it's, and it would only keep going, right? Mm. It would only, you know, Passive income, it's not just, these guys are not Gandalf. They don't just magic wealth up, you know what I mean? If they are getting richer and the middle class is getting poorer, and then it compounds, right? Because then fewer middle class people, when I say middle class here, you know, like this, I mean people in the middle. I know people use this term for different things. Your average family, 20, 30, 40 years ago, your average family owned a fucking house and now they fucking don't. Mm. Where did those fucking houses go? And, you know, look at the size of mortgages. Where is that debt to, you know? And then that means you pay more interest because you've got a bigger mortgage. You pay more rent because you, own, you buy a house later. That mortgage goes to the rich. That rent goes to the rich. Then they have a bigger cash flow, which they use to buy the houses that your kids fucking need. You know, this is a spiral and this gets worse and worse, you know. What's this quote, this attribute to Albert Einstein, compound interest is the greatest force in the universe, you know. Flows of wealth matter. Mm. You know, the middle class is losing its wealth. The, the, the amount of home ownership there, especially once you account for mortgage, is collapsing. The government is fucking bankrupt, basically. And this is not just the UK, by the way. This is across the Western world. Mm. You know, these two things are not connected. Government is losing wealth. Middle class is losing wealth. For that. When I say middle class, all the new families are losing their homes. And the rich are accumulating all the rest of this shit. So that injustice, which you've just laid out in very stark terms and very clear moral terms, to be honest with you, you're betting on that, making money on that. Yeah. Morally, psychologically, how was that for you? Were you conscious of the fact that you were sort of the, in practical terms, the reality of it was meant for these families yeah. and the fact that you were, you were profiting off it. There's a line in the book. So I, I, I came in, I first started doing these very <clears throat> pessimistic bets at the beginning of 2011. And like a, like a week or two weeks afterwards, the, the Fukushima earthquake happened in Japan. And 20,000 people died in that earthquake. And I made fucking $6 million. Obviously, I didn't make the fucking earthquake happen, you know what I mean? Mm. And my junior is sitting there, like, thinking, oh, my God, you're such a good trader. I'm not, you know, like, I didn't fucking know an earthquake was going to happen, you know? That was my job, mate. Mm. My job was to bet on, is the economy good or is the economy bad, you know? If your job is to fucking fix washing machines, you don't fix the washing machine and think, is that good or is that bad, you know what I mean? But, well... I think possibly you do. Well, I mean, this is the... And I think, in, in a sense, this is the story of the book, right? Listen, I grew up in London, right? I didn't have an easy childhood, you know? I grew up amongst... This, the culture I grew up in was fucking get rich or die trying, right? That's, those are the cultural values that I picked up as a kid, you know? I wasn't told, like, it's your job to look around and, like, help other people. I'll tell you what, there wasn't nobody looking around and fucking helping me when I was yeah. a kid, right? Um, but then you do these things, you know? And I, you, I didn't expect to make as much money as I got, and there's a, you know, I think quite a moving scene about my first bonus when it sort of made me think, like, you know, what does this mean? But um, it was a lot for me to process. And I think for a long time I was kind of in denial about it. Um, I mean, the truth is, I didn't make the economy shit. You know what I mean? But that doesn't mean that I don't have a responsibility to do something about it. And I think in a sense, especially the latter half of the book, maybe the latter third of the book, is kind of about this struggle in me and about this question for me, but also I think for all of us, you know, 
for the reader, for the people watching this. You know, neither you nor I are in charge of the economy, right? The fact the economy is shit is, is neither your fault nor mine. Whose responsibility is it to do something about it? Because I guarantee you, the people who are supposed to be fixing it, they're not going to fix it. Mm. So, you know, obviously you, you'll know by the fact I'm here now and people who've seen my work will know I, I've chose to walk away from that to try to do something about, you know, the economy collapsing. I haven't fixed it yet. Um, We're still waiting. Yeah, but, you know, that's... It's not just a question for me. Mm. You know, like, we can fix this. You know, inequality doesn't just have to go up forever. You know, the last time inequality really significantly decreased in this country and across Europe was after the Second World War. And, you know, that happened because people fucking fought and demanded it. You know what I mean? And um, if enough of us demand that something serious is done about growing inequality, something can be done. If not enough of us demand it, well, you, you, we are seeing what, what, what will happen. And things can get a lot worse. It's really interesting to hear you talk about um, the reduction in inequality after the Second World War. There's a guy, Walter Scheidel, who wrote um, The Great Leveller, and he basically says, it's a very pessimistic outlook, but he says there's only four ways, I've got to try and remember them all now because I yeah. start talking about it, <laughs> to reduce inequality. And he's like, basically, it's mass mobilisation warfare, um, plague, you know, like horrific plague, violent revolution, and total state collapse. But, you know, the, the logic of his argument basically being, unless a ton of people die, you cannot mm -hmm. reduce inequality. Now, I don't know, I, I can't accept that just because I don't find it compelling or because it would be such a bleak way to think about the world that maybe that's it. But I, I'd like to interrogate the kind of orthodoxy that you're almost swinging against and prevailing against, right? You, you're, you're, you're talking there saying, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about inequality in the economy. And no one's trying to fix it or no one's even aware of how to fix it. So where do you think that sort of orthodoxy comes from? Whether it's, you know, the theoretical, the political, the fact that people don't view the economy in the terms that you're describing it right now. I think at the moment that is the birthplace of that is in the universities right now. So if you study economics at university, you didn't study economics, did you? Yeah. Okay. It's a very highly mathematised discipline, okay? Um, and it's not an easy subject to study. It, the maths is not complicated, but you need to essentially memorise a huge amount of maths, right? So you go in there, you need to be memorising a fuck ton of algebra to do well, well there, right? The models themselves are not that complicated, but you need to be memorising a fuck ton of algebra, right? You do not have time to sit back and be like, are these models actually good? Are they mm. complete, right? And the models that you're memorising... They're what, what are called in economics representative agent models, which means that you don't look at the, like the whole country. You say, let's imagine with the, we look at the one average guy, and he's the average Joe, that's the guy we look at. Well, of course, when you, when you do that, when you simplify that, you're not, you're not looking, you can't see any inequality. You, know? you can't have inequality in a one-person economy, right? So what we, we train our economists to memorise a fucking tonne of maths and algebra about economies, economic models and ideas with no inequality in them. And, you know, education matters. So, you know, that is why at the beginning of COVID, you know, I've got a video on my, my channel called How the Rich Got Rich from COVID-19. first video on the channel, which explains this massive government deficit will end up with the rich. You know, we can go through that if you want, but it's on that video so people can see. If the government, the US government gave out $10 trillion. That's 80,000 US dollars per taxpayer. You need to fucking know who's going to get that. Mm. And the, the most amazing thing is not that it happened, but that nobody asked the question, who is the guy who's going to get massively, massively richer here? And we can only have that situation when economists have been almost brainwashed to never think about distribution. 
And I think this is, you know, the reason I'm a multimillionaire really comes down to one simple fact. I understand that wealth distribution matters. And that's why I'm fucking right year after fucking year. That's why I was fucking top trader in the world 2011. That's why you can go and read my articles and watch my videos from 2020 saying there's going to be a fucking cost of living crisis and inflation crisis because I understand that distribution fucking matters. Mm. And this is, you know, I honestly think, I don't think I'm going to fucking change the world one person, but ideas are powerful, right? If enough people in this country understand that the reason that their fucking kids can't get houses, in many cases can't have families, a struggle to feed their kids is because of growing inequality, then we will fucking stop having it. Mm. You know, but people need to understand, I think not enough people connect. People don't realise the reason they're poor is because of growing inequality. I mean, we've kind of got this almost brainwashed idea that you can't think like that, that's zero sum, that's fucking politics of envy. Listen, I'm not fucking, I'm not fucking Mahatma Gandhi, I'm not here to talk about morality, okay? I was the best fucking trader in the fucking world and I'm the guy that calls it right every fucking year, okay? If you do not fix inequality, your fucking kids' lives will be shit and it can get much worse than this, right? Go and look at what average living standards are like in really unequal countries. Go to Mumbai, go to Sao Paulo, go to Johannesburg, you know? And if you think that can't happen in this country, you know, read fucking Charles Dickens, you know what I mean? It can happen here, it will happen here, you know? You need to protect your wealth distribution. If you, if, you, if you move to a super elite country, then life will be shit. Find me one country that's super unequal where life is not shit for ordinary people. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the Politics Show cast. Why do you think it is? Is it like just British exceptionalism, this idea that, you know, well, okay, things might be bad. But they'll never be that bad, you know. We, oh, we'll never become Sao Paulo. We'll never become <sighs> Mumbai. What, 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 yeah. what do you think is going on there? Is it a political thing? Well, I mean, look, the, the truth of the matter is we have lived through, you know, the 70 years after the Second World War in the West, in Europe, in North America, were probably the best time and place to be a human, you know what I mean? And I think there's maybe a little bit of a kind of lazy subconscious racism there, which mm. is, look, you know, the Western world was really, really rich. Maybe we're just great, you know what I mean? And, but, you know, the reason the Western world was rich, in my opinion, was because it, it moved to a much more equal situation. Um, and we're losing that mm. now. Um, but, you know, people live 70 years, they don't see the grand sweep of history. The, the truth of the matter is, you know, if you're a historian, you look back, that 70 years after the Second World War, that was the exception. You know, most of history, including in Europe, including in the UK, is mass, mass poverty. Terrible living conditions for the masses. You know, a small elite living a very luxurious life, you know. That is most of history in the UK, 
in France, you know, in all of Europe, um, we can go, I don't want us to go back there. Mm. But people, and it doesn't bring me no joy to make these super pessimistic predictions, but people need to know that because um, if they don't realise it, then they, it will come in without them doing anything about it. Well, then let's, let's talk specifically about housing for a little bit because I was reading, I was in the FT, I think this weekend actually, that in terms of the average house price versus average earnings, we're now up to about eight times, right? Mm. The last time that was the case in Britain, 1876, right? So it's before the mention of the car. Queen Victoria on the throne. It's yeah. a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. For a start, could you talk about how inequality impacts on, I guess you call it home ownership, but perhaps it might be better to refer to it just as asset ownership, perhaps. Yeah. So the simplest way to understand this is, if you give a thousand pounds to an average man or woman on the street, they will spend that quite possibly that year, but almost definitely within the course of their lifetime. Most average people die with very little accumulated wealth, which means they spend everything they make, you know. My grandparents all owned their property and they died with basically nothing, you know. Ordinary people spend the fucking money they make in their lives. If you give a thousand pounds to, you know, somebody worth 700 million quid, they won't even fucking know this. It goes into the investment account and it accumulates, um, which means it's buying assets. So what that means is, Poor people buy goods and services. Ordinary people buy goods and services. Rich people buy assets. So in like a mass market economy, what you have is, you know, goods and services are expensive because people want them, which sounds bad, but what's your job? You provide goods and services. So that's good because you can get a good wage because you can sell stuff that are worth money, right? Mm. In an expensive economy, what is worth money? It's what, it's what the rich want. And what do the rich want? Assets. So if you, you go and look at, I think a lot of people in this country they look at like these historical graphs of um, house prices as a multiple of earnings and they say, oh, this is fucking unsustainable, mate. Go and look at what it's like in really unequal places. Go, go to Hong Kong and see, you know, mm. you know go, to, go to Sao Paulo and see what the average wage buys you in terms of housing. You know, go back and look, you know, you know read your Charles Dickens, you know, look at what the average person got for housing back then. You know, really unequal places have never provided good quality affordable housing because at the end of the day, you are competing with very rich people to own those properties. And what the rich people want, I've got nothing against rich people, I'm, I am a rich person, right? Rich people buy assets and they hold assets and they accumulate assets and they, they, they naturally empire build, you know, because the, the money grows itself because of compounding interest, right? Um, yeah, you know, you are in a competition with rich people for assets. If they are really, 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 really rich, then you, you can't, I think COVID shows that better than anything. You know, COVID was a massive accumulation of cash by rich people. People are predicting a house price collapse, you know. If you give rich people 800 billion quid, you know, house prices will go up. And I don't think we've seen anything like the last of that. I think house prices will go absolutely mental in the next few years in this really? country. Because, you know, the rich still have that money. They have a lot of money, you know, and, and you know, they, they use that to buy houses directly or to mortgage lending, which indirectly pushes house prices up, you know. Rich people buy assets. If you give all the money to the rich, asset prices will go up. You know. Is it a sim simple question of supply and demand that if we were to, you know, simplify the planning system, embark on this massive program of house building? Not that I see that there's much political appetite to do that from either party, but nonetheless, yeah, boost the supply. Would that do much to sort of equalise the market? You see, or bring bring the prices down? <sighs> so I still work in the city. It's a very international place. Then I went to study at Oxford, very international place. I studied at LSE, very international place. I speak to people a lot about what the economy is like where they're from. Every single person in the world thinks there is a massive 
house price crisis caused specifically by the planning system in the city they live in. People in New York think this, people in London think this, people in San Francisco think this, people in LA think this, people in Tokyo think this, people in Shanghai think this, people in Sydney think this, people in Vancouver think this, people in Toronto think this, people in Rio de Janeiro think this, right? This is a fucking global problem. Glo- and it's, it's not even just, look at stock prices. Every asset in the world has gone through the fucking roof. This is a problem about asset prices broadly, and it's clearly global. So, you know, we can fucking hang, draw, and quarter Sadiq Khan if we want. You know what I mean? And, yeah, I've never met the guy. He might be a prick. I don't know. He might be lovely. You know, don't get mad, Sadiq Khan. (laughs) I've never met you. I'll cut it out and send it to him. Um, (laughs) It's a global problem. It's a global problem. And it's, you know... I think we need to just be a little bit more broad-minded about things. Well, go on then. So in terms of broad-minded solutions, how do you see, what is the way that we should address it then if it's not the things that I just mentioned? You know, I I think you need to deal with these problems at the the cause, you know. We've got to stop addressing, like, the million symptoms. You know what I mean? Okay, housing is unaffordable. The NHS is unaffordable. Wages are collapsing. You know what I mean? Holidays are unaffordable, you know. All of this, in my opinion, is caused by rapidly growing wealth inequality. Even even regional inequality. I'd say one thing, one, one... Good example, right? Everybody, economists will tell you the reason London is expensive now is because people prefer big cities now. And it's true that a lot of big cities have become unaffordable, okay? So why is Oxford fucking the second least affordable place in the country? Mm. Why fucking, why is Verbier in the fucking Swiss Alps gone through the fucking roof? Why are the Hamptons expensive, you know? Why is Newcastle, which is a big city, why is Glasgow, which is a big city, why have they not become expensive? The reason is rich people don't fucking live in Newcastle, but they do live in fucking Oxford. You know, this is not about big city, small city. This is about if you give all the power, all the economic power to a tiny group of people, then everybody else needs to live where they fucking live. Otherwise, how do you get a fucking job? Mm. You know, if you have a well, if you have a good distribution, everyone is a worker, everyone is a consumer. So I can live with a group of people. We're all workers, we're all consumers. We all work for each other. We all consume off each other. If you give all the power to those guys, you know, they don't live in Newcastle, they never go to Newcastle, they don't study in Newcastle, then what do the people in Newcastle do for fucking work? You know, I'll say, I'll say it a million times, distribution matters, and I think, you know, you need, to cure the, we, we, you need to cure the cause. You know, if you keep trying to af- afford things you can't afford because you're poor, because all the wealth went to the rich, and you never do anything about the underlying, it's like we're playing chess, and I let you take my pieces one at a time, and then say, okay, well, how do I win? You need, to, you need to deal with the structural problem. Mm. And this is why, you know, I'll say it a million times, if you deal with inequality, you can make things better. If you don't deal with inequality, you'll make things worse. And people can point and call me a communist as much as they fucking like, right? I make millions of pounds betting on this, all right? That doesn't sound very fucking communist to me, all right? I'm not here because I'm a good person. I'm here because I'm a good fucking economist and I don't want this fucking country I grew up in to go down the fucking toilet. That's as simple as that, mate. For sure. What's the mechanism? What's the level? You know, obviously, barring famine, plague, um, revolution, violent revolution. I think we obviously want to avoid those things, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not. You know, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a small guy. I'm not a violent person. You know what I mean? Like um, by myself, yeah, it's tough. But what, what are we talking then? Is it? Are you are you sort of advocating for a, a wealth tax within our current economic model? Are you yeah. advocating for an overhauling of the entire system of you know sort of a, a yeah. market liberal democracy? What, what's in your mind? It was that Dutch guy at Davos, wasn't it? Rutger Bregman, taxes, 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 taxes. Um, listen, people hate taxes, um, but if you're in a situation where the rich, if 
that the wealth is flowing out of the middle class and out of government and into the rich. And as a result, your middle class is becoming poor over generations and your government is becoming bankrupt over generations. What the fuck else do you do? You know, you know, if you look at, it's hard for me not to look at what's happening now and not be reminded of the early 20th century. And that took a fucking war, you know what I mean? A fucking genocide, right? I don't want to see that in my lifetime, right? Taxes are a solution and, you know, people hear that and they're like, oh my God, don't fucking tax me, you know? This is not about people with a million quid. This is about people with 10 million quid. If you don't stop the wealth flowing to them, then in the end, they will have all the wealth. Um, and taxes are the obvious solution, you know? And there's a... There's a, there's a video on my channel called The Wealth Time Limit, which is kind of like a, just an idea to think about, which is zero tax solution. You just say, rich people, 120-year time limit on wealth. So you can give it to your kids, you can give it to your grandkids. If they've still got it when you're 120, it's gone. Mm. So basically, they have to spend it. If they spend their wealth, they sell the wealth, spend it, then what does it mean? It means people who are working end up owning that wealth. You know, you need, you need to, you know, it's not popular, but you need to do some fucking class analysis. You know, how do we get the wealth you know, I think, I think focusing on flows of wealth, it really can clarify your understanding of the economy. Which groups are accumulating wealth? Which groups are losing wealth? And, you know, realistically, there's only two ways to do it. You either tax the rich or you make them spend a fucking massive amount of money. Remember, Rishi Sunak, £21 million a year passive income. And there's people out there much richer than, much richer than Rishi Sunak, you know. Mm. So, you know... Probably you need some combination of both, which is you need to aggressively pursue higher spending of the rich and you, you do need to tax them more as well. We'll talk uh, a little bit more about the sort of competing political solutions on offer right now um, in the UK. But just to focus on Sunak for a second, because, I mean, look, you had some pretty choice words. You've had some pretty choice words <laughs> in the interview, but in the book as well about your, your, you know, your colleagues on the desk, which you, you know, in varying shades describe as dysfunctional geniuses, Public schoolboys, etc., etc., etc. Rishi Sunak, Winchester College, um, ex Goldman Sachs, and I usually try and I, I almost like shy away from being like, well, he's so inordinately wealthy. But I mean, as you actually demonstrated by in terms of scale, there are plenty of people who are richer than him. But mm. nonetheless, he's a very, very wealthy man, and I. I mean, two minds about whether that should whether that should be relevant to my analysis of him as prime minister, right? It's like, yeah, because actually. Should you play the ball and not the man? You know, should you just think about his policies and his political solutions and disregard the fact that he is as wealthy as he is? Yeah. But I, I kind of am shying away from that more and more because I, I just when you see him go into a petrol station, not know how to use a credit card. Yeah. You're sort of thinking, well, how on earth can you have any idea about the sort of economic reality that most of the people in the country you govern yeah. are facing? I mean, if you're me and you're somebody who has made an awful lot of money by betting for a long period of time that growing wealth inequality and, and growing capture of wealth by the very, very, very rich is destroying broad living standards, then of course you're going to be very worried when a man whose father-in-law is one of the richest men in the entire world becomes prime minister, right? Um, and look, it's no surprise that, and it's nothing new that very wealthy people try and influence politics. What, what is new is them sort of directly becoming the politicians themselves. Um, look, I don't, I don't judge people based on how rich they are. You know, I, I know there are good people who are rich people. And, yeah. I know there are bad people who are poor people. <laughs> yes, I grew up with some of them. Um, but incentives matter, right? If I'm right, okay, people can say I'm wrong. You know, if you think I'm wrong, just call me a dick in the comments. Um, if I'm right and the problem is like growing wealth inequality, which is like growing wealth capture by the very rich, 
Is a man who is worth 700 million quid and whose father-in-law is one of the richest men in the world likely to fix that problem? You know, like, if you've got cancer and, like, your doctor is a guy who's, like, betting on, like, cancer being the next big thing, you know, he's got, yeah, he's got a lot of skin yeah. in the game here and it's not in the right direction. And that doesn't mean he's a bad person. I never met the guy, all right? And I'm, I've been critical of his policies, but, you know, this is not, I, I don't think we benefit necessarily by personalising things. Um, it's a systemic problem, but, you know, if, if the situation is the super rich are doing well while the rest of us are struggling, he is undoubtedly super rich, you know, and that, it concerns me. Well, let's talk about the policies then. Let's, let's do that. And we live in a first-past-the-post system here in Britain. It's virtually impossible for a party that isn't the Labour Party or the Conservative Party to govern the country. Mm -hmm. We're starting to see more and more flesh on the bones now as we approach a general election about what the sort of two competing visions, economic visions, are going to be. Um, there's actually a fair degree of overlap, you know, Keir Starmer suggesting that uh, his Labour Party will actually adhere to the same fiscal rules as the as the Tories, at least for the first couple of years of a Labour mm -hmm. government. Um, but even from like a more philosophical or theoretical perspective, you know, it is, it is broad stroke, liberal market democracy. Yeah capitalist system so i mean i to start with i just sort of probably just invite your general assessment of the of the two parties competing economic um beliefs and whether or not you you feel like it's a legitimate choice between the two politically i mean i don't think you'll find many people who disagree with the fact that there's very little distance between the two economically um it's it, it, it feels a little bit coke pepsi doesn't it um you know, I think the Conservatives are very unpopular. Living standards have collapsed under their under their governance. Uh, that's pretty obvious. Um, I don't see any realistic desire to combat inequality. There are some people that say, "Oh, but he's just he's just pretending to not care about that when he gets in." And I think we'll we'll get to test that out. I think very probably. I'd be very surprised if he does anything serious. But look. I don't want to kick on Labour. Listen, the, mm. the centre-left parties in power in many Western countries, including the USA, Spain, Germany, none of them are doing anything really serious about wealth inequality. And this is because not enough people think that the problem we are facing is, is fundamentally caused by wealth inequality. This is why I, I think the idea is very powerful. You know, I'm always reminded of, of Brexit. When Brexit first, at the time of the referendum, main three English political parties, dead against it. Now you have the main two political English parties have to support it. Why? Because enough people said, this is what we fucking care about. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm a lover of Brexit, right? But this shows public opinion has power. There's a reason why billionaires buy fucking newspapers. You know what I mean? If you can control the public opinion, we do still live in democracies, you know. If enough people say we need to do something about wealth inequality, we'll get it. But, you know, I, I speak to Labour MPs off the record, you know. I'll be open to Conservative MPs, but none of them have messaged, <laughs> never got in touch yet. None of them have messaged me yet. Um, <laughs> and, you know, some of them are like, yeah, you're right, you know, we need to do something about it, but we don't think it's a vote winner. You know, and whether that's right or not, you know, we, we the people of the country, um, and I'll do my bit, we need to persuade them, no, we think it is a fucking vote winner. Mm. And, and if we don't fix it, things will get worse. My real concern is Labour comes into power, they don't do anything serious about wealth inequality, Living standards continue to fall, maybe at a slightly slower pace, hopefully. It's been fucking quick pace the last few years, so it better slow down. And then people say, well, fucking that didn't work. Centre-right doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Centre-left doesn't work. 
we'll try something else. And, you know, you tell me what the most likely alternative is at the moment. You know, what are the other voices out there saying? Well, you look at Europe and it's right-wing populism. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's you know... You know, at best, it's anti-immigration. But, you know, those guys come in, they don't fix the economy. What comes after that? You know, it's hard not to be reminded of the early 20th century when you look at what's happening. Um, if living standards keep falling, the centre will collapse. And when the centre collapses, to be honest, anything can fucking happen. Mm. It's a very worrying thought, to be honest with you. Okay, so looking ahead the rest of this year and before you sort of draw things to a close I was going to invite predictions for 2024 from you but you've just sort of you've made it pretty clear that actually you, you suspect living standards will continue to fall over the course of this year yeah I mean inflation's come down a lot inflation probably will continue to fall um, how far it comes down maybe it'll get down to target but it will continue to fall I think in the next six months like first six months of 2024 we'll see inflation come down more Bank of England will start to cut rates um it's five, so five percent now. It could come down to, could go down to as low as markets think like four, but it could go lower than that. Could go lower as low as three. Um, I think what that would then do is all this at the moment. These rich guys who've accumulated tons of cash during COVID, sitting on it, getting five and a quarter percent. When that's three percent, they'll be like, "Fuck this!" They'll start lending it out. People will be able to get mortgages again. They'll start buying things, and I think you'll see the mother of all. You know, this might, this might be twenty twenty five. You know. I think in the next years we see the mother of all asset price rallies. I think house prices go through the roof. Really? Yeah, it might take a couple of years. It might be a bit longer than 2024. I think house prices will go through the roof. I think stock prices will go through the roof. And um, that actually really worries me because, you know, you know, I know you have a lot of, like, young people watch this. I think young people know house prices going up is bad in most cases. But that will be so divisive in our society because some people own houses and they'll be like fucking quids in. They'll feel that way, even though really there's no way to benefit from it other than selling your house, mm. in which case your kids will never own a house. Um, but I think that's going to be potentially really divisive. And it will also collapse living standards because it means young people have to rent for longer, possibly rent for their whole lives. You know, rents are already going through the roof. Um, if house prices go up, they'll need bigger mortgages, they have to pay interest for longer. Um, I just worry about how divisive that will be for society. But you know, Labour will almost certainly win the election They'll probably get an outright majority. They might not. Um, I think the public will turn on them very quickly because because they won't provide the living standard increases. And you know, living standards the it's the only thing that matters really politically for people. You know, I know the Conservatives are trying to make asylum like re refugees a thing, but at the end of the day, you know, it's the economy stupid. People can't feed their fucking kids. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about that being sort of the dividing line in our politics because I, I, I talk about it quite a lot and I see that division between sort of a wage class and an asset class and more and more closely now that also resembles demographic lines, right? Mm. The, the asset class is the older generation who own their homes and the wage class is the younger one who don't. And at some point, if, if, it, if it continues on its current trajectory, there has to be some form of political conflict, right? There, there has to be. And I, I don't actually know what form that takes. Yeah, but it's interesting, right, because what you have is this conflict between people and their kids, people and their yeah. grandkids. And, you know, you know, I like to think people in this country, like people across the world, care about the future of their kids and grandkids, you know. Um, I'm, all, I'm really interested in, you know, this, like, this avocado toast thing. Yeah. Because I think when, when people own property, which in many cases older people, see their house price go up, they think, like, yeah, great, I'm rich. I can, like, sell it, have a great retirement. 
And they don't realise the flip side of that is, of course, well, when house prices go up, it makes it harder for your kids to buy a home. And we're rapidly moving into a world now where, unless you get significant money from your family, buying a home is kind of impossible, right? And then older people, they should think, oh, well, actually, house prices going up is not that great, right? Because now I can't actually sell my home, which means I can't benefit in any way from the house price going up. The only way to benefit from your house price going up is to sell your home, right? Mm. So I can't sell my home because then my kids will be homeless. So then I don't benefit at all. But then this avocado toast stuff kind of tells them, don't worry, sell your home to us. You'll be fine. Go fucking live in fucking Spain somewhere. Live the fucking dream. Have a great retirement. Your kids will be fine. They're just fine. They're doing stupid shit. Netflix. Yeah, exactly. They're wasting them. Don't worry. They'll be fine. Just like you were. They'll be fine. They'll sort themselves out. And it's selling a dream to the older generation that they can have their cake and eat it. The reality is... The older generation have to choose. You know, I was raised going to church. There's this Bible story of um, these two brothers. And the older brother, like, was a big hunter. And he'd come back starving one day. And his younger brother said to him, I'll give you some food if you give me your inheritance. And the older brother's like, yeah, done, done, great. And I can't help but be reminded of this story. Like, this is what we're doing to the older generation. The newspapers are saying, listen, don't worry, mate. Have this great stuff now. Don't worry about the inheritance. The kids will be fine. Kids will be f- but the kids are not going to be fine. And I think I see a big part of what I do. You know, I see people like, like I fucking hate boomers and shit. We, that's not how we fucking win. Mm. I think the way that we win is kind of creating a, a first of all, an understanding and a kind of a bond of empathy here. Listen, those older people are being lied to. They are being told that they can enjoy that rising house price and their kids will be fine. The kids will not be fine. And... Listen, we should not accept the generational divide because these are our fucking parents and our fucking kids, you know, and I'm sure the older people of this country do not want their kids and grandkids to live lives of poverty like are common in places like Brazil and in places like India. Mm. So, you know, I always put into my videos, you know, tell your mum, tell your nan, you know, because we can't win this divided. You know, the only power ordinary people have to protect themselves from the very powerful and the very rich is that there's a lot of them. And if they're divided, then they can't use that power and they can't win. Gary Stevenson, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you. Trading game available from all good book shops, book retailers. Um, it's been a pleasure having you in, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.